It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. Before I open the phone lines, I want to take a minute to thank everyone who's downloaded and subscribed to the podcast. Right now, we've got listeners from all over the US, Canada, the UK, Spain, South Korea, Australia, and Ireland. So my sincerest thanks to each and every one of you for joining the AITD community as we continue to grow. So let's do this. Episode three, caller three, and their story about addiction. Addicts in the dark. Hey, Nick. Hey. Hi. So I don't know exactly where you're calling from, but... I do know you're calling from somewhere in the U.S., uh-huh. and I guess it depends where in the U.S. you're from, so this may or may not be a surprise to you, but it's 47 degrees Celsius here today. Oh. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it means our igloos are getting fucking hot. I did not know. that. I mean, I heard Canada got it bad for you guys. I'm in this, you know, I'm like right across like Washington from Seattle, and... So Seattle, you know, it gets hotter here and hotter, you know, during the summers, but 110, 112, I mean, we were dying a couple of weeks ago. Now it's normal. Now we're like, okay, we can, we can handle 80, we can handle 85. Like we, we understand this heat, but a hundred over a hundred in, in July, we, that was, un, that was unbelievable. Because, you know, we don't have AC for the most part. And so... Wait, so let me ask you about that real quick, because I'm originally from the eastern part of Canada. And when I moved out west, I was surprised to find out that AC basically isn't a thing in houses around here. And apparently it's not a thing in the Pacific Northwest either. What no, is that? nobody in Seattle does. Why? It, okay, because it never used to be this hot, number one. I, you know, whatever. Stand on your soapbox on either side of that debate that you want to. The world is on fire. We're all dying. But, you know, it just simply didn't get that hot when I was growing up. If it hit 100 degrees, I mean, it was once, and it was in the depths of August. And if it hit 90 degrees, everyone was on the floor, prostrate, half dead. And it happened once. You know what I mean? Now it's, you know, forever. We're at 90 degrees, you know, most summers. So old houses, you know, Seattle's an older city and it's just not equipped. And then people just don't, they just don't do it. It's, it's not in the, it's not in the uh, psychological makeup of Seattleites to have AC. Um, yeah. So we just, you know, we make do because nine months out of the year, nine to 10 months out of the year, generally, it's not, you don't need it. You barely need it usually for, you know, July, August, and it's not worth the thousands and thousands of dollars to to pay to put it in your house. Well, if the smart scientist people are actually right, then in theory, this will be the coolest summer of the rest of our lives. Well, there you go. Yeah. Enjoy it. Exactly. Yeah. You better, you better start, you know, getting used to it and you know, just, yeah, condition yourself. So uh, we are on a time limit, maximum of 60 minutes, and just Uh want to remind you, don't get any more specific than you already did about your location, Uh and don't mention your name. Okay. 
All right. So tell me about your addiction. Well, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I started out in a different way than I think that I've heard a lot of addicts start. When I was a kid, I had a very uh, severely addictive mother, single mom. I had a you know variety of stepfathers coming and going, but I had a very young mother. She was 18 when she had me. And then, uh, so we kind of grew up together, but she was a you know, pretty determined alcoholic and, you know, a lot of pills for just not coping with things. And so a lot of prescriptions, a lot of um, alcohol. And I was very turned off by that. I never was curious. I saw um, a lot of very distressing, disturbing things. I had to take care of her. She was abusive, really bad stuff. Um, so I never was even curious. I never dabbled. I never took her pills. I never drank her drinks. And that was all the way through high school. I never, uh, never interested. I was the adult in the house. I was the only adult in the house. And so she ended up, you know, she died of, of liver failure when I was 19. And I had to go through all of that. And I was the adult, you know, for all of that stuff. So I didn't touch uh, drugs or alcohol or so I thought at that time. But when I was uh, 17, I didn't think I had anyway, but I actually had started my addiction. I just didn't know it. Um, when I was 17, I began having panic attacks. And I didn't know why. I didn't realize, you know, what was going on exactly. But we went to the doctor. The doctor said, she's having panic attacks. This is really bad. We want to you know, maybe, you know, check her into children for a week and try to really figure out what was going on because they were so severe. And my mother, being my mother, said, we're definitely not going to do that because there were too many secrets to keep at home. So she said, no therapy, no psychiatrist, nobody's going to get into this because um, there was very much a facade to keep up. And so um, they wrote me a prescription for one of the benzos, you know, it was either Valium or Xanax or Ativan or something like that um, because it was the 90s and that was just what you did. Um, and they said, okay, you know, consider getting her some therapy. She really needs it. You know, consider checking her in, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, definitely. We'll definitely think about it. I'll probably do that. And then we drove to uh, the park and she taught me how to melt it under my tongue. And she said, if you put it under your tongue, it works faster and you're going to feel a lot better. And this is what you do when you have, you know, an anxiety attack or when something, you know, when you start to feel like that. And I said, okay. And that's what I did for, you know, the next couple of years. And then she died and, you know, I, I kind of continued and my family doctors, when I would see them, I would say, I'm really, you know, I'm stressed out or I'm depressed and, they would say, okay, well, let's do this antidepressant. And yeah, if you're feeling nervous and you're having panic attacks, well, you know, here's some out of them. And so I was on those for quite a while. Mental health was still suffering, suffering, suffering. And then as I got older, the anxiety got worse. The panic attacks got worse. The depression got worse. It, it really got bad. And I needed it terribly to make this disquiet 
in my system, in my brain stop. And then the self-medicating really started because I thought, well, this is how you solve problems. So, you know, the antidepressant and, you know, some Ativan turned into, okay, now I need something stronger because that's not working anymore. So then it was, okay, uh, next doctor would would say, okay, let's do antidepressant and then a sleeping pill. And then let's do um, a longer acting, stronger benzodiazepine. Let's do clonopin. Okay. So now I'm on those things. Um, and that, you know, kept me going for, for a while. And I actually did quite well on that. Didn't abuse them, just kept using them. And my brain got very used to needing those chemicals to be able to function. And that was, you know, through my 20s. Then, you know, I started my career, high stress sales in the cosmetic surgery realm. I was a lot of pressure to look a certain way, a lot of pressure to behave a certain way, a lot of money involved. And, you know, not having any real coping skills and not, you know, very good problem solving skills, I definitely felt the pressure. A lot of pressure, a lot of uh, anxiety, a lot of stress. And all of those things together um, conspired to give me panic attacks, insomnia, all of the things that, you know, people with better abilities to separate themselves from stress and cope and all of these things can handle, I could not. So keeping everything together on the outside, slowly I I am unraveling on the inside. So being in the medical field uh, meant that I had access to doctors all the time. And the doctors were very interested in keeping me, how can I say this, productive. I made them a ton of money. And so my doctors, my regular doctors were very generous with me. They, you know, I was smart, attractive, educated, white, blonde, you know, all of these things in my beautiful clothes. And I would go in and I would say, here's how I'm feeling. My neck hurts. My shoulders hurt. I had a disc problem, which was very legitimate. I had a horrible disc in my neck, MRIs, the whole thing. And I would go in and I would say, here's what I need. Um, I need, you know, Vicodin and I need my Xanax and I need this antidepressant and I need, you know, I mean, the list would go on and on. And I would say, here's what I need. I know what I need. Um, and I would be on a regular prescription for all of those things um, every month. Then, if and if there was any breakthrough or if there was anything that I needed at work, um, I could easily get additional prescriptions for those from my surgeons because they needed me to be uh, productive and out of pain and calm. And so I was absolutely a drug-fueled, just a walking pharmacy. I was on so much Xanax um, that I I do not know how I was vertical. I don't know. Um, And yet it didn't even affect me at that point. 
I took a great deal of hydrocodone uh, every day. I would, I tried to take oxycodone. It didn't agree with me. So I would just take copious amounts of the hydrocodone, trying to keep the, the low level of Tylenol in it. Um, I had to take sleeping pills to go to sleep. I had to take just a shitload, just a metric dick load of caffeine just to, you know, wake up in the morning. They would prescribe me Adderall, um, not the, not the surgeons, but my regular doctor, because I was like, I don't think I can pay attention. Um, never mind that, you know, I'm on an elephant tranquilizers, you know, at 110 pounds. And they're like, oh, you don't think you can? Can you fill out this, you know, five question questionnaire? And I was like, yeah, boom, 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 boom. And they're like, okay, let's try Adderall. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. So I'm, you know, I mean, I just got handfuls of pills. And uh, at one point, when my neck got so bad and my pain wasn't being controlled, um, they actually sent me to a pain clinic. And I had never, I had no idea these places existed. Uh, they sent me to a pain clinic to talk to this pain doctor in this very secretive building. And please stop me if I'm going on for too long. Um, the pain doctor there was kind of this creepy man. And he, um, of course, this was all insurance. This was all on the up and up. Um, told me I had two choices. And one was morphine and one was methadone um, to control my pain in my neck. Um, Sorry, just just for clarification, yeah. what was the neck pain caused by? Oh, um, I had a bulging disc. It happened very suddenly. Um, I woke up one morning. I was traveling for work. I woke up in a Portland hotel room and I couldn't move my neck. Um, it wasn't an accident. Nothing happened traumatic. Uh, I must have moved some way in the night that. Uh, something happened to my disc. We don't really know what happened. I um, I woke up at about 4 a.m. and I couldn't move my neck whatsoever. I was alone in a hotel room. I couldn't even, it took me like 30 minutes to like slink my way off the side of the bed onto the floor to get to my phone. Um, it was very sudden and it was, but I've always had neck and shoulder like pain, stress. But nothing like that. And um, uh, I called my boss. I called, you know, everybody. And I was like, I can't move. I'm on the floor of this hotel room. And basically, they said, because my, my clinic that I was going to across the street, because I was visiting a clinic that, that day, um, my boss, this is, this is how cutthroat the industry that I was in, uh, she said, okay, I need you to get up somehow and, you know, just, just try to slink your way into the bathtub in the hot bath and lay there. She's like, take whatever you have and then just get yourself across the street. She's like, I don't care what you have to do, but like you're speaking to people today, you're training, here's what you're going to do. Like get across the street. They're going to meet you at the front door and doctor such and such, whatever is going to give you a shot of Demerol and, you know, and whatever. And then they're going to order you some really strong, um, medication. And, and one of the girls, one of the, you know, receptionists or whatever is going to go pick it up for you. But I got a shot immediately when I entered 
see the clinic um, of Demerol so that I could function. There was no going to the to the hospital. There was no going to the doctor. I got shot up like a racehorse. And I didn't think anything was weird about that for some reason at that time. I was like, no, the show must go on. I... And the, I mean, I did feel better. You know, I got, oh, I got the Demerol and then I got a, there's an anti-inflammatory that's really powerful that you give by injection, um, Toradol. Uh, it's called Toradol. And that really will, so eventually I went back, you know, home and I was able to see uh, my doctor immediately and I went and had an MRI and I had a really uh, badly bulging disc. And um, it took time to heal it. It took a long time. But in the meantime, I was in pretty excruciating pain. And um, so when they couldn't control it with the hydrocodone anymore, my my doctor said, okay, I'm going to send you to this pain clinic. And and yeah, the two choices. And, and I, was, I was told by this guy who was really pimping this stuff. He really believed in it. He was like, methadone is a pain medication first. They only use it for drugs later, for drug detox. It's a pain medication. That's what it was originally used for. And I said, I don't want to take methadone. I don't even, it doesn't sound good. I don't, I don't ever want to, I don't know. So I tried this, the morphine, but I, I had already been on so much medication before that, that it didn't even touch it. I was like, I don't know what kind of baby pussy dose you're putting me on, but this is not, no. Um, and I was pissed because I couldn't control it. You know, I couldn't control how much they only gave me, you know, this amount and I couldn't, I couldn't take how much I thought I needed to take. And so I came back a couple weeks later. I said, this isn't working. We tried the methadone, same thing. Um, that made me feel really sick. So I said, I don't want this. And then I went back to my doctor and I said, I don't want either one of these things. We just have to go back to the hydrocodone and I'll, I'll just be in pain. So I'm on all of these things. Then I decide that, you know, I'm with all of these people. You know, I'm making a couple hundred grand a year, almost. I think the highest I made was like 190, which I rounded up. Um, So I'm with uh, fast-moving sales group doctors. And we went out a lot. We went out a lot. And we drank a lot. Um, So I went from somebody who did not enjoy alcohol, wasn't able to handle it very well, to someone who was drinking a great deal, getting blistering drunk, um, driving. I couldn't lower my standards fast enough and making very high risk decisions, you know, just, just unbelievable. Then at the end of all of this, this all came crashing down. I had what they used to refer to, I guess, as a nervous breakdown. Um, If I would have been a man in the 50s or 60s, they would have called it a nervous breakdown. If I would have been a woman in the 50s or 60s, I would have been in a straitjacket. I got very diva-like and I quit my job uh, because I didn't like, I don't know, the way that I was being treated and I just I did a whole Zsa Zsa Gabor thing and stomped away and left. And I had my very champagne taste now and no job. And I was making bad decisions with my doctors and like refusing to come in and wanting them to still refill my prescriptions. And pretty soon uh, another doctor was kind of assigned to me and she goes, 
you need to come in or I'm not, you know, filling these. And I kept putting it off and putting it off because I knew, I knew what I looked like by then. Um, Because I was drinking like a fifth a day of vodka by then. And I knew that I looked like a puffy, bleary-eyed, you know, face down on the carpet, drunk. Because I had been on the, I had been on face down, just depressed and bottom of the barrel, rock bottom for probably, I don't know, three or four weeks by the time I had to get refills. And I had to, I was cut off from my doctors because I stomped away. So I couldn't ask them. And I was going to have to drag myself into my doctor's office. And I, I knew as soon as they took a look at me, they would have been like, oh, shit, what did we do? Um, the facade was gone. So I kind of got cut off from all of my supplies, you know, um, because I really, really just self-destructed. And um, but guess what? You don't get cut off from booze. So I, you know, stayed on my antidepressant because that was easy to get through just doing telemedicine. Um, so I stayed on an antidepressant and my, you know, regular just little old thyroid medication. And I drank and I drank and I drank um, so much vodka that, you know, I just, it's like I was going on a tickling myself mission. So at this point, you had no access to benzos? For a while, yes, I did. Um, for a while, I had benzodiazepines because I had, I just had a shitload of them. I had a stockpile for a really long time. Right. See, that's the thing with benzodiazepines as a treatment for anxiety. It's a catch-22. Because anxiety does have a purpose. It acts as a shield for us and protects us from making poor decisions. Absolutely. But the problem is benzos are so strong compared to other anxiety medication that it doesn't lower that shield. It completely eliminates it. Yeah. And without that shield, we engage in more risky behavior and make poor decisions. Absolutely. Something that I didn't know that I did learn in treatment is that um, alcohol and benzodiazepines work on the exact same, the exact same spot on the brain. So unlike other drugs that may light up different parts, you know, uh, you know, cannibal, cannabinoids can light up one part, and, you know, blah, 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 all over the place, different pleasure centers in your brain, um, alcohol and benzos tickle the same spot. So if you're an alcoholic, um, you're also incredibly vulnerable to that because they, they do the same thing in your brain. So it, it doesn't surprise me that I liked both. Which I guess explains why sometimes people are prescribed benzodiazepines to fight off alcohol withdrawal. Oh, absolutely. So with that in mind, I wanted to circle back to your mom for a sec. She died of liver failure. And I take it the liver failure was associated with alcohol? Oh, it was 100%, yeah liver failure due to alcoholic hepatitis. The reason why I ask is because I see some indirect irony there. Because the drug that highly impacted your life, in theory, is the same drug that could have saved your mother's life. I never thought about that. Um, She certainly didn't educate herself. She didn't, you know, that really wasn't 
anything because then she would have had to face it. She would have had to like acknowledge that potentially alcohol was a problem for her and that really wasn't what she wanted to do. Um, but yes, it is. I mean, it, it really isn't. She went to, you know, treatment two or three times. So maybe she did know. Um, yeah, it was it, pretty tragic, pretty tragic chain of events that, you know, I'm older than her now, you know, I'm, I'm a 43 year old woman, um, now and she passed when she was 39. It's very strange to, you know, to have outlived your, your parents at, you know, at such a young age. And, you know, my partner, cause I do have a, a boyfriend and all of this long term, and he knew, you know, he knew that I was, that I was having a hard time after the loss of the job. You know, he was like, okay, she's really, really losing it because of this job. And she's going to snap out of it. But she's always been so strong and so strong-willed and independent. And he just kept waiting for me to, like, rally. You know, he's like, she's going through a really hard time. Like, her identity was wrapped up in what she did. And, and this is hard. And he's, he's, he just tends to be a little bit more on the passive, you know, enabling side. And so one day, I just looked in the mirror and I said, this is this is unsolvable by you right now. And I went to him and I said, I need some help. I, I can't. I can't do this on my own. And he goes, what? Okay, hold on. You know, he said, well, do you need to just like slow down? Do you need a break? Do you need to go on vacation? You know, he is just kind of like, well, then, okay, what do we need to do? And I said, I need to go to treatment. Um, I've gotten myself in a real second hole and I can't get out of it. And the minute I stop taking these Xanax, I start to sweat. I start to, I was like, the booze is bad enough. But when I stop taking these pills, I like, it's way worse. Like, I don't know um, why, but I, it's, is that like I shake and I sweat like buckets so I said um while I still have insurance I was like I gotta uh I gotta go take care of this and so I called around and I checked myself into Evergreen for what ended up being a six-day detox and they put me on barbiturates because you can't exactly detox someone from benzos with benzos and they said I was on such a deadly amount in combination of benzodiazepines and alcohol that the doctors really didn't know how I was alive. They were like, you should have died so many times over. Um, that's the deadliest combination of, of those two things. Um, I can tell you without question that I have felt myself very, very, very close to death multiple times, or at least, at least a few times that I know for sure. I have like come out of the of the way 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 too deep of a respiratory situation, going, <clears throat> you know, and that's exactly how it happens, you know, is that you just simply stop breathing. So I feel incredibly fortunate to be alive, but you know, I I did at least have the wherewithal to say I can't I can't do this anymore, one way or the other. I'm either going to die or 
I'm going to go um, take care of this. So I did the detox, transferred right over to a women's private treatment facility here in my uh, neighborhood. And it only accepts like 12 women at a time. And I spent, you know, 36, 37 days, 40 days maybe. And that was seven years ago. And that's how that happened. And how did life shape up for you after treatment? Um, I did not have a pink cloud. You know, I, I was a little pissed off about that. Um, I really wanted to have a period of time where I felt joy or some kind of uh, renewed interest in life in general. I came out feeling like shit run over. You know, I watched a lot of people around me kumbayaing and, you know, friggin' skipping and holding hands. And I was like, what Kool-Aid did you drink? Because I think this is like, I'm serious. Oh, I know you are. I'm not that easily impressed by that stuff either. Yeah. I went, if this is all it takes to, to get you excited, I mean, I was like, my life still fucking is like a dumpster fire. Are you guys going home to, you know... Narnia or something because I've still fucked everything up. I'm going back to everything that I already shit on. So, okay, fun. And now I just don't have anything to, to blunt it. I, I really needed the time in treatment to heal my brain a little bit, to be out of my environment, to meditate and focus. And really, honestly, as gross as this is, I had to sweat it out. Because my body was so toxic that I quite literally had to sweat. It was in September. And so I'm coming up on my seventh year in a couple months. And I had heat rashes from my chest to my back to the backs of my legs. I was so uncomfortable. I poured sweat by the bucket off of me. And that's Xanax for you. Yeah, that's the thing with downer drugs, whether it's it's Xanax or heroin, those create physical addictions. Your body needs them. Yeah. If you go on a cocaine bender, for example, for three days, yeah, you'll feel like shit because you haven't eaten or slept in three days, but your body doesn't need the drug. Your brain tells you you want the drug. That's more of a mental addiction. Absolutely. Downers, on the other hand, are much more of a physical addiction. It's a whole other animal. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I. you're right. And they, you know... <laughs> When I, t- when I told them how much shit I was on and how it was all combined and yeah. And they said, Oh no, 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 you're going to the hospital. They said, if you stop taking those, you're going to die. Like that's yeah. the combination that is the killer. And if you stop taking them, you know, you have to be detoxed. It's, they go, if you, if you stop taking heroin, you feel like you're going to die. You hope you're going to die, but you won't die. Like you'll, 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 bark your brains out and you will fucking crawl on the ground and you will be as sick as a dog and you will, you'll wish you were dead. But benzos and alcohol, you'll, there's a very good chance you, you will just die. And I was like, Oh, that's lovely. (laughs) That's good news. So they said, you get your ass to the hospital. And if you can't get here, you do not stop taking those things. You can't, you know, they were pretty serious about that. So by the time I got to the tre- to the actual treatment, uh, yeah, you don't. See- I was like, just shoot me. Like this is this is the worst that a person can feel. So it was an unpleasant experience. It was treatment was not fun, and certainly it shouldn't be. You know, it was it's not meant to be summer camp. It was difficult. It was difficult to come home. It was difficult to 
face reality. Um, I was not ready to look for a job. I wasn't ready to, you know, I wasn't ready to do anything. I, I felt, I felt defenseless and, you know, and eventually a few years later, I, I never touched pills again. I've never touched pills ever again, but I started drinking again because I had to test it. I had to touch the electric fence. I couldn't believe, I could not believe that I couldn't handle it. I was like, it, it was because of the pills. It was because of the pills. You were never an alcoholic. Um, you, you could always have like a glass of wine, you know, before, and, and it was never an issue. You know, it was only after you started taking these damn pills and that's what like led you into this weird, you know, brain thing. So then I thought, okay, well, you're an adult and you're no longer on medication like that. So why don't you just try it? Why don't you just try to have a cocktail like a regular person? So I did. And within a matter of, I don't know, two months, I was a fall down drunk again. Full on, sip of vodka a day, no problem. Uh, isolated myself, didn't want to do anything, didn't want to leave the house, didn't want to blah, 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 blah. And that was years later. That was like two or three years later. And immediately, I didn't have to go to treatment again. I immediately, eventually, you know, I mean, it took me a minute, but I looked at myself. I realized I was hiding it. Uh, I did not tell my partner I would hide it. I would wait until he was like gone you know, um, visiting family or out doing, you know, whatever. And I would hide bottles in my own house and I would just do all kinds of shady shit like that. And then I finally went, what are you doing? And that time was a couple years ago and a few years ago now. So at that time I said, okay, there is something wrong with your brain and it's time to really figure out what it is. So I said, okay, you've never really given therapy a try. You've never really given um, figuring out what's going on with you mental health-wise. You've always just taken these antidepressants and tried to, you know, think that maybe that's the anxiety, like letting that kind of be the diagnosis. So I decided to uh, go and get a full evaluation done. Thank God for good insurance. I know you guys don't have to worry about up, up there, but here healthcare is ridiculously expensive. And if you don't have good insurance, good luck getting, you know, mental health help that's really good. So I went to a private mental health facility slash hospital and I said, hey guys, um, I'm wondering if you can help me. I would like to have a real evaluation done by top-notch psychiatrists and psychologists, and I want to go and figure out a treatment plan based on that recommendation. And they looked at me and they were like, were you hospitalized? Because they don't get people walking in off the street. This is a hospital. I mean, it's very small. It's very discreet. And I said, nobody you know, no, I wasn't hospitalized. And they said, well, who referred you? And they said, nobody. And they said, well, who's your psychiatrist? I don't have one. Who's your therapist? I don't have one. And I was like, can you help me? And they were like, I guess. So they did the evaluation. I did three days of like a battery of tests, talked to a couple of their psychiatrists and psychologists. And when all was said and done, their, their head psychiatrist 
And that, oh, and I had a medical. They have an MD there too. He did a full exam and blood work and everything. And she came to me and she said, I think you've been misdiagnosed. And I think that is part of why, you know, these antidepressants don't work for you. And potentially why over the years you've self-medicated and, you know, she goes, I don't think that you have traditional depression and anxiety. I think you're bipolar. And bipolar two, which is the real depressive one, not the fighting dragons in the street one. And I go, what? Nobody's ever said that before. I was totally caught by surprise. And so 25 years later, um, I get this totally different diagnosis. And I said, what in the hell does that mean? What am I supposed to do with that information now? And she said, well, we have a program, if you're interested, that for six weeks, you it's in five days a week, you are in a group, it's like eight hours a day, you you know, meet with your psychiatrist twice a week. You are with, I don't know, I guess it was probably three different psychologists, you know, doing all of this stuff. And it's basically a job. You do it for six weeks. And then if you want after that, you can go into um, the next level, which is like three evenings a week. And it, it was intense. And it's a commitment. Meanwhile, you know, they manage your medication and change it. And they're monitoring, 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 and it's a huge thing. But I, I talked to my partner and I said, I really want to give myself this gift. I am struggling. I've obviously been struggling for a really long time. Something is up with my brain that I continue to try and medicate. And the medication that I've been taking for a million years doesn't work. And, and now, you know, I, I would really like to see if, if this is, something that I can solve. And he was like, I think that's a great idea. You've got the time. We've got the money to be able to do it. So do it. And I got to tell you, um, as far as someone drinking the Kool-Aid, I did it. I will, you know, and I did this program for six weeks and then I did three or four weeks of the next phase with the psychiatrist and with the psychologist. Um, life-changing. And they took me off of the antidepressants that I was taking, which wasn't doing anything. And they put me on mood stabilizers, two different ones. And it was almost as if the orchestra, the very loud, loud, crashing, off-key, anxious, grinding orchestra in my head quieted down for the first time probably in my entire adult life. And one of the medications happened to turn off. I don't know how it does it. I know that as an off-label thing, they happen to give this medication sometimes to people who struggle with addiction, but it's not what it's originally for. Um, for me, it happened to have that side effect where it's almost as if, you know, like a cartoon bomb, like the bzz, and then it's just like a giant pet pair of scissors. It just cut the, cut the cord. I couldn't believe that after I, after I did take it for, you know, a week or 10 days or two weeks or whatever it was, 
my that need that I had felt where I always was like, I need for this noise in my head to stop. I need for this anxious feeling that I always have to go away. Like, what can I do to, to manage that? What can I do to kind of stifle that? The mood stabilizers made that just kind of, you know, everything just sort of quieted down and I could think around it. And I'm not saying it deadened anything, but it gave me a moment to breathe so that I could use the coping skills that I'm now, you know, seeing a therapist every week to work on. Because before, it didn't matter how many coping skills I read about or talked about, I didn't have any space to be able to to use them because I felt like everything was so, you know, loud and right now. And so that's, I'm glad I was able to give that time and that gift to myself, but it's, it's been incredibly valuable. So since then, I have not had the desire to drink, use any medications, or really engage in any risky behavior. I haven't needed, I haven't really needed any, any outside, you know, quote unquote help. And I'm really grateful for that. Not that I claim to uh, use the most righteous wording all the time, obviously, One thing your doctor said that I wish she had worded differently. She said, you are bipolar. That's not true. You have bipolar. You know, your condition doesn't define you. We don't say you are chicken pox. You are (laughs) COVID-19. Exactly. And I'm not downplaying how much bipolar affects your life. I I know how much bipolar affects your life. I have bipolar type two as well. Uh Uh-huh. And I like how you described it as having an orchestra playing in your head. I kind of describe it as having multiple streams of consciousness. And when we finally manage to lower the volume of the streams of consciousness or the orchestra without substances, it's like, holy shit, is this what normal people feel like? I remember, yeah, saying to my to my group even and to my therapist, I was like, is this what you guys feel like all the time? And I was shocked. Yeah, when everything finally calms down, it's so bizarre. I was shocked. I was like, have I been walking around with a totally different reality than everyone else? I I couldn't believe it. I was like, is it really not loud all the time for you guys? Yeah, exactly. It was, it was so weird. Yeah, do you ever, I mean, the, I think one of the most fantastic changes for me that happened really early on was that the amount of ruminating that stopped the amount of like the different dialogues that I had going on all the time, the obsessing about small conversations or things. I could have multiple, multiple trains of thought and and conversations and it almost would border on obsession over, over things that I simply can't do anything about, but it would, you know, low key stress me out. And then further this really hateful self, talk would go on, you know, as an undercurrent kind of all day, every day, you know, this tape that would play in my head, I guess it's the common term for it. It was pretty ugly. It's like, there's nothing I won't say to myself. I mean, just nastiness, just nasty, nasty, nasty. And, and I figure, you know, if I, if I were to say that to another person all day, every day, I can't even imagine what it would do to them, but I have no problem in my own head saying, saying these horrible things. And, and really since, you know, really getting started on, on the correct medication and 
I mean, using that as a tool and also using it as a tool to help facilitate a really good stab at, at excellent therapy, because that's what everything has to, you can't just do one thing. You can't just do the meds, unfortunately, but that's been so nice. That's been so nice to like tell that little voice to go, okay, it's time to go to sleep now. Well, I'm glad to know that ruminating eventually stops because uh, I still do it. And the thing is, I don't just do it when I'm alone. I'll be doing it in social situations. I'll be playing things over in my head and basically having multiple conversations with myself. And I'm obsessively going through something almost routine-like. Oh, yeah. And the problem is, in a social situation, when you're pretending that you're actually paying attention, you're trying to pay attention, the person you're talking to is actually interrupting the routine. Yes, yes, yes. I'm in the car and I just have the most, I mean, I really do, almost to the point where my mouth is moving. People think that I'm insane because I'm having animated conversations with like my ex-husband and, you know, my best friend. And I'm so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I'm cured of them. I'm just saying they're, they're less and at least I can recognize them when they're happening and, and say, okay, there's an expiration date on this one. We need to stop. To an extent, I kind of wonder sometimes if the ruminating can be constructive. For the past year, I've been ruminating over my relationship that ended. And I have gone through, well, I haven't finished it yet, but I I am going through pretty much every single conversation, instance, scenario, situation that we were in. And I replayed in my mind the way it happened, the way it could have gone, what I would have been thinking if I went about it differently, what she would have been thinking if I went about it differently. And that type of ruminating can be constructive. It can also be a waste of time. And for some people, it can be so painful that it causes them to use again. You know, I think it's great that you have learned a lot, you know, through your rumination. Maybe it's painful as it is and can be, you know, it's, it, you're getting something from the experience and, and it's hurt, you know, it hurts that you're like, okay, here's where I did this thing, you know, for me, I, I'm like having weird, you know, my conversations, yes, I'll replay, like I can go, God, when I lay in bed at night, if I, if I don't have like the right white noise going on and the right like podcast in my ears or the, you know, some historical story that I'm listening to, like I'll go through my whole life conception to present day and like pick it apart. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's mental masturbation is what I call it. It's just, it's just, it's just being pissed off or, or being, you know, yeah, there's, for me, it's not, I'm not learning anything from it. It's just, it's just noise. And yeah, it's not helpful. If I thought I was getting anything helpful out of it, I, then, then at least there would be a saving grace that no, it's just plain old ruminating and, you know, being obsessive and being a control freak. So it's better for me if I just nip it, let it go on for a few minutes and then say, okay, new subject, you know, what are you, what are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do? But I never thought about that, that people could go over things that, that have happened before and then that might trigger them to, to use again. I just think I'm really glad that, you know, I got a chance to talk with you because, you know, it's, it's interesting, I think, and part of a, a, a big part of an epidemic, how many people get to a state of rock bottom looks different for everyone. It really does. And a lot of people like me end up not understanding the label of addict when they have prescriptions for their drugs of choice. You don't have to be buying 
you know, street drugs to be a fall down, unfunctioning, just as miserable as you can possibly be junkie. You know, it's, um, I think it's a shame can come away from it a little bit. I mean, I think it's less shameful for somebody who's, you know, who is experiencing a heroin addiction right now because, you know, so many people are going through it and there's so much compassion kind of overall because now, you know, everybody's fucking middle-class white kids are doing it. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm already in there. You know, nobody had any compassion for black kids, you know, strung out on crack in the 80s and 90s. It was like, oh, gross, get out of my neighborhood. Um, But, you know, there's so much shame and stigma for middle-class um, people in my neighborhood or something, you know, it, it's just like, oh my God, what? You know, you're addicted. You know, what's wrong with you? Um, how could that ever happen to you? You're, you're supposed to be an upstanding citizen. Um, you know, pills and booze. Oh, Jesus. So people just have to get over it. I sing it from the rooftops. I mean, I talk about everything all the time. Like, yep. This all happened. Pills, booze, bipolar, the whole nine yards. No shame in my game. Um, because, you know, secrets kill people. And I saw it happen firsthand. My mother was way too ashamed to talk to anyone. And she closed herself up and she shut all the doors and windows and she died all by herself. And because it was easier and more dignified for her than reaching out and asking for help. She would rather die alone and give up and just was not going to be my story. Well, thankfully, the more conversations that we have like this, the less likely there is for those secrets to exist. You know, who knows? Who knows who will listen to your podcast and just, you know, any, any little thing that anyone hears that resonates, you know? Reach out, get help. You mentioned earlier to prevent yourself from ruminating that you need the perfect podcast. Maybe this can be the one. Yes, well, I will be. I will be downloading your podcast for sure. I, I want to hear other people's stories. Medication that cures pain and creates it at the same time. People who use prescription drugs feel angry, overwhelmed sad and hopeless to begin with which is maybe why at first they have a hard time even recognizing that they have a problem or find the help they need to overcome it thankfully this caller did by the way despite what the big voice guy is about to say if you want to reach out to us through email to be on the show you can get us at addicts in the dark at gmail.com talk to you soon If you want to anonymously tell your story about addiction, find Addicts in the Dark on Instagram.